Hello, friends and neighbors, and people further afield, wherever you're listening to this. Welcome to season two of the Alive at 825 podcast. My name is Chris. A couple quick shout outs right away. Shout out to Sarah Nichols and MK Wynn who helped me with season one and definitely will help me with season two as well. This episode is with somebody that I've known for so long, I figured I would just take it on my own. So Devon Gray is our guest. And a real quick warning, he recorded this interview in an area adjacent to a dance studio. And if it's a little boomy in the background while he's talking, just know that I tried to, to deaden that, but it wasn't quite all the way possible. Uh, without further ado, let's get into season two. Devon Gray, DVRG, how's it going, man? What's up, brother? How you doing? Doing really, really well. Um, we are going to talk about uh, the arts that you do, which I know is primarily music. And we're going to talk about the neighborhood that you're from, which I know is primarily Rondo (laughs) and uh, and sort of how those things intersect. Uh, But right now, tell tell me where you are right now. Like, what what am I seeing in the background? The people who are listening to this can't see it. So let's let's get the describer. I'm in my office, which I call my creation space Um, and a neighborhood that I don't know. I've never given it a name. It's you know, I'm in between like 280 and Midway. So I don't know where I am. Some some people call that like the the furthest parts of Midway. I guess I don't know. I would yeah. I like to think it's Midway. Your uh, your council person over there is Mitra, so that's <laughs> all I know. <laughs> and y'all got some cool murals that just went down with that chromosome project. Uh, I love all the murals. Two years ago, I was out on a run this afternoon, and yeah, from the cool down, so many new murals. Love yeah. that. And West Windship just created that like giant like five story tall mural like a block from where you're at. Um, that's like a depiction of, uh, uh, like, a, I think it's like a train yard worker. Uh, yeah, it's, it's seriously like four or five stories tall. Super awesome. Um, yeah. Over off of Vandalia. If you're, if you're in the neighborhood of university in Vandalia, go up university from St. Paul towards Minneapolis and hang a right at Vandalia and just start looking around. You'll, you'll see some cool things. Um, there's a, I'm, I've been in this space now for, almost a decade and I'm almost out of here. I'll be leaving before spring springs. Where are you going? Um, sort of downsizing, moving into a bigger place. So I'll have a home office and I can take the piano with me and treat it better than I can treat it here. Wait, so you said you're downsizing. So you're moving into a bigger space. Explain that. <laughs> a bigger home. Uh, so that I can have office space and a room for the piano and all the, so I'm, I, what I meant downsizing, I mean, instead of having two spaces and two leases, one lease. Got it. Got it. So you are moving yes. into a bigger space, which will accommodate both living and creation space. Got it. I'm with you now. Yeah. Um, that's awesome, man. Uh, well, uh, I guess uh, it's been a good run if you've been there for as long as you have been. Um, yeah, an interesting space with a lot of our friends in St. Paul. And Twin Cities artists have, you know, used the space over the years. Yes. Yeah. Memories. So uh, who the heck are you? Why am I interviewing you? Like, what what makes you so special? Who am I? I'm one of your, like, oldest friends in life. We've known each other since we were five. Yeah, that's true. We've been in a band together for 20 years. Oh, yeah. Thanks for the pandemic. I kind of forgot about that. (laughs) 
we've had a clean slate. Yeah, we've forgotten everything. We're, we're new people now. Yeah, you are. Uh, you're you're leaving a whole lot out, of course. Like uh, beyond that, like you are a classical composer and arranger. You have been uh, a part of many other bands beyond just our band, High Respects. Um, and you have a, a background playing uh, quite a fair number of instruments. So uh, let's. Why don't we start there? Like, how many instruments do you play? What instruments can you play? Can I play? I I claim piano and keyboards. That's fair. I can play those, and I can play those in a pleasant manner. Yeah. Or a pleasing manner. Uh, I have played many of the woodwind instruments in my life. I uh, think in, like, first grade, you were working on clarinet. Saxophone came first. So, yeah, saxophone came first. Um, and, then the, flutes, and then clarinets, then oboe, then finally the bassoon. And the bassoon I still play, and I feel like uh, – yeah, I've got some some mastery, some kinship with that big, beautiful piece of wood. Uh, <laughs> but then I also count electronics and synths in its own category, away from, you know, traditional keyboards, piano. Sure, sure. That's like my whole world right now is just like, I don't know how to play piano or keyboard as you do, but there's like electronic keyboards that I love to mess with. Mm-hmm. And I make cool sounds out of there and yeah. I make, I make records out like that. So yeah, I'm with you there. Um, you, as long as I've known you, which I believe is kindergarten, yep, kindergarten. Um, Maxfield, shout out Maxfield. <laughs> um, I, as long as I've known you, you have been um, a musical person. You have, I think at that point, even then in kindergarten, I think you were starting to learn an instrument, probably your first instrument. Yep. Yeah, um, and I think that, um, I think that, from the very beginning that I met, that I knew you, you had some classical influence um, where like, I'm thinking back to my Maxfield kindergarten days, but we're like, Orvel might be like listening to NWA at that time. You were playing, you were, you were like aware of very different music. Where, where did that come from? Like you were clearly getting that from somewhere or did you just gravitate towards classical music as a little child by yourself? No, it came from my teachers and mentors first. I feel like my natural gravitation was to whatever my siblings were listening to. So that was NWA and a lot of Prince, thanks to my sister, uh, a lot of DJ Quick and uh, other things that I should not have been listening to at that age. But, you know, I had siblings who were like 10 years older than me. So that's, you know, it's fair game. Yeah. Well, I mean, obviously there's no saxophone or clarinet or flute in like DJ quick productions. So like, where, where did that come from? Was it like, I, you know, I was enrolled in band, so I had to do it. Or did you, or was that like, uh, was there another influence in your, in your family life that was introducing you to that music? No, it was all self-directed. I, I really don't know what the motivation was. Um, with the piano, it always seemed clear because I grew up in a house fortunate. Uh, fortunate to have grown up in a house with the piano because again some of my older siblings had dabbled um, but they didn't put the 10,000 hours in they they gave up long before that yeah that that's me man I grew up in a house with pianos too my grandma had a grand piano in the living room of her house and my mom had like a just a stand-up piano but had like you know they insisted on a house that had piano windows so they could actually put a piano in a dedicated space 
And so it's important in our household too, but I can't play you. I don't know how to play it. I could not read you the music. I mean, I'm sitting in front of a keyboard right now. You can't see it. It's just off this, the screen in our little Zoom meeting here. But like, I don't know what I'm doing exactly on it. I know what the notes are, but I couldn't like play you a thing. <laughs> sure you could. You could play us anything you wanted to, and that would be a thing. That's I might what... I might want to play you some complete nonsense then. <laughs> That's what I've made my life into is just playing complete nonsense and getting compensated for it sometimes. Uh, I, you know, not create, not nonsense. It's everything makes sense. Everything makes sense in its own way. So my world these days is trying to chase that free expression and uh, self understanding and just speaking your voice, playing yeah. with choices, playing yeah. that your director. Last on the last season of the podcast, we had um, an episode which did not air, unfortunately, because it just didn't seem right with like the pandemic. It was recorded just before the pandemic and so much changed so quickly. But Mike Dazzle, um, he said in his interview that uh, he does digital art, which which he considers to be fake art, (laughs) (laughs) which is definitely not fake art. Right. It's like a a real thing that takes real talent. And uh, yeah, so I think that uh, if you play. Uh, if you play music that is not like written out like a like a, a you know Mozart piece that doesn't make it any less music, right? No. Um, but you, like, I'm gonna keep it to our early years, right? So you going through grade school, you were a part of band and you became sort of a part of like um, you got to practice these instruments in a way that led you to actual like classical training later on in life. So can you kind of describe like your early school and where that took you? Yeah. So, I mean, I, I was fortunate. The first teacher that I had on piano at five was a classically trained teacher, a classically, uh, classically trained pianist. Um, and she had a wonderful long career in education and specifically trying to get black and brown kids to play piano and to play classical music. Um, Dr. Prentice Harris, and she lived two blocks from me that's, you know, that was the connection. My, when it was, came time to find a piano teacher, my mom looked around and, hey, there's a genius just down the block. So, of course, that's where you're going to go. Yeah. Um, from there, I ended up at Walker West Music Academy because, again, I, yeah, like you said, I was expanding. And so I needed a saxophone teacher, found Felix James early in life, and he became a mentor all the way through high school. So everything I wanted to discuss or talk, talk about uh, classical things, jazz things, hip hop things, R and B things, anything. He was open to it and had answers for me, or had direction for me. Um, again, just uh, a great educator who had his specific thing, which was saxophone and hard bop and jazz from you know from his era, from his youth. But he's a good educator, and what they do is just help you to expand your mind, help you to find your own paths and. Yeah, just be gurus and guides. I don't feel like I ever met him in person, but I feel like I've seen him at the artist quarter <laughs> um, way back in the day before the artist quarter moved when they were still, I think, in the basement of Galtier Plaza downtown yeah, St. Paul. Love that location. Yeah. Um, well, that's awesome. And you actually went on to college. You actually, well, I think you went to Purpage too, did you not? I did. I, I was at Central with y'all and it was yep, fine. Yep. But I. I I, uh, I like smaller institutions. I feel like I, that just clicked one day. I was like, this place is too big for me. I love the music program at Central. 
and you can do so much, so much was possible there. Yeah. Um, and I loved that I was in the jazz band and the concert band and an orchestra and playing in ensembles with Sean and Martin and Kevin. Um, but yeah, one of my teachers, one of my private teachers told me about Purpage. I hadn't heard about it. And I had maybe a week and a half before the deadline to get nap in. And yeah, I said, so, so yeah, went for it. Audition, was happy to have gotten in and was happy there because it was a small institution. Again, just you got to know everybody in your class and you got to make music with everybody, which was fun. Yeah. Were you, did you happen to be there when Tony Basta passed away? No, I don't think so. Okay. Yeah, I was there last year. Uh, one of our one of our good friends and somebody else I should have on this podcast, Nathan Vang, um, he went there as well and is currently in Portland, Oregon. But um, man, like there's a I was I was shocked because we went there to go see like a senior presentation kind of thing that he put on two years ago now, I guess. And uh, there's like a hallway with like, it's like dedicated to Tony Basta. There's another St. Paul name that people might or might not know. But yeah, I was just like, oh, that's super cool. Um, so after Purpage, you graduated from Purpage, right? Yeah. And then, and you went on to to the East Coast, I think, for school. I did. I, I had my pick of conservatories. I auditioned at a handful and got into a handful. Um, so ultimately... I chose the school based on the city more than who I'd be studying with or who would be around. Um, going from Minneapolis to Manhattan felt a little intimidating. I thought I might get swallowed up again by an institution being too big. Um, and upstate New York didn't sound attractive to me at all, coming from a cold place with not too much snow. <laughs> so the other spots were Cleveland, Baltimore, or Boston, and I said And no. clearly you chose Cleveland. <laughs> Boston felt good to me. Okay, okay. Fine. Always been drawn to coasts, always been drawn to the water, to oceans, so New England Conservatory had me for a time, but I did not finish. I'm a Kanye-level college dropout <laughs> for some of the reasons you were talking about earlier, about notation and about classical music and it's, I don't know, it's, it's lineage, it's, it's, it's educational path. It just got a little too rigid for me. I wasn't able to study all the things that I wanted to. I wasn't allowed in my degree program. So I had to fight with provosts and deans a little too much and I just got tiresome. Is it, uh, fair, is it fair to say though that that is where you really started taking your sort of classical composition work seriously? I feel like I was on that path while at Purpage too. I got to study with Janet Vandervelde and Dr. Chris Granius while still in high school. And again, having good mentors early in life uh, or early in the process of figuring out if you want to pursue a craft is crucial. I had great people early in life. And I got to study with some other folks who came through town through uh, various fellow visiting fellowships through the Composer Forum. Um, so, I mean, yeah, comp composition is a little weird. You have to have already proven yourself to get into these programs. Yeah, let, let's cool. let's talk about that for a second. Because, like, we had um, the first person in the first season was Damian Strange, somebody else who I know you know. Yeah. Um, and he obviously also has his hand in that game of, of mm -hmm. composition and sort of the more 
classical and sort of experimental or jazzy fronts too. And um, I know that he talked a little bit about that. We talked a little bit more about like the, the um, we talked a little bit more about his Morris Blackman background, but like the um, there, it, it seems like there's like um, in almost every musical genre that I have come across, there's this like hierarchy game and like, in most popular music, this is what everybody will know, right? Like there's a record label and the record label is the one who puts you on and has the relationships with the distribution. And like now in like 2020 and 2021, that's all disrupted. And like you as an artist can go directly to the masses through social media, but like there's still a business that runs it all. Right. And I feel like in classical music, um, from the little bit that I know from you, from Damien, from a handful of other people that I've met along the way, there the record label is not the force. It seems like there's like way more academic forces that sort of choose the hierarchy and choose sort of like how you get on, so to speak. Can you can you kind of break that down? How is that based? Yeah, the sort of structure is the same, or in a lot of ways, in while you're in the institutions, while you're in schools. Uh, it's, it's the same when you get out and you're pursuing jobs with professional orchestras, the way they make you audition and sort of prove yourself. And then you're in uh, a probationary period while they're trying to figure out if your personality matches with them. It's not just how you play, but will you get along culturally with this group of a hundred people? Yeah. Um, it's um, yeah. There's, so there's that known elitism of classical music and that you have to go to these conservatories or these Ivy League schools to get this premier education in this European tradition is, it's just a bunch of bullshit, really. Uh, we were down the road from Berkeley, which is you know the flip side of the coin, the pop music world, the jazz education systems or institution, which again, a lot of us believe that once the music gets to the point of being teachable in an academic or institution, situation it's a dead music and that's tr proven with classical so if oh, you're as in the way they do it, yeah it's dead no one's the people making the music we're not interested in that shit anymore we're we're somewhere else we're on to something else so we need to round up all those teachers those professors who are teaching tupac poetry right now and just like drag them out into the street and shoot them so that hip-hop can still live is that what you're saying hip-hop's gonna do what's gonna do the <laughs> artists are always gonna make the things that they need to make and they know what to ignore so okay uh, yeah well we talked for hours about notation and you talked about how you don't know how to put yeah you know what you need to know same as i know what i need to know to make music and a lot of it that i've had to do is to unlearn things that i was taught forget about the rules and try to find what is what are my rules sure and it just takes work and it takes time sure do you um do you I mean, I'm in a band with you now and we'll talk about that later. So let's not get too far into it. But do you find that you still draw from that that experience uh, with those rigid rules from your classical training, both in sort of like high school and then again later on in Boston? Do you find that 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 those strict, rigid rules do come in handy or do you find nowadays that that's something that more often than not you're trying to shake those chains away? Yeah, for me, it's about shaking all the chains away. Um, so even the, 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 the forms and the structures that I've learned from playing with high respects over the past couple of decades. When you say uh, forms and structures, you mean loops of four bars. Got it. Harmonic choices, rhythmic choices, uh, compositional choices. Same 
it's the same for any of the genres, any of the subgenres. Um, yeah, because we're all using the basic or a basic set of tools that have a common language. Uh, half notes, or sorry, half steps and whole steps on these keyboards, and it's imitated on all the other instruments. My music these days is also veering toward the microtonal, so the notes that are in between those notes. Nice. Into uh, just intonation, which are things that are not in equal temperament, but are sounds that are more natural and more like what the world would make on its own, what the universe sounds like, as opposed to what's a rigid man-made system. I'm, I'm trying to understand what that means. And I, I don't, I guess I'm not wrapping my head around it. What <laughs> is it? Is it a, is, is there a way to demonstrate that? Uh, yeah, a little bit. Uh, like, I'm not, I'm not asking you to like go hook up a bunch of equipment or nothing if that's what you have to do. I'm just, I mean, no. is there like a, is there oh. a way that our listeners can sort of understand better? You say, um, you said eight, you said a few things. You said atonal and you said, um, said microtonal. Microtonal. Thank you. Um, just intonation. Yeah. So there's a sort of big, not big, but uh, big umbrella sort of concepts. The piano, usually when it's tuned, is in an equal temperament. So there's a, an equal space between half steps going all the way up the instrument. So there's an equal equal way that the that the harmonics work. There are other ways that a piano can be tuned based on Pythagoras's other ratios of the harmonic structure. The harmonic okay. So Got I have it. my piano tuned to one seventh comma modified mean tone tuning. So it's. One seven syntonic comma modified mean tone tuning. Okay. So for that, it means the way I explain it quickly is perfect fifths aren't perfect. They're smaller and major thirds are more perfect. So you're, the, you're opening up harmonics that are based on thirds instead of fifths. Okay. Well, I'll say this because I think a lot of our listeners probably don't understand the music theory of that, right? But um, for those of y'all who do, you do. Cool. Um, I'll just say that, like, I think that there is a lot that you can do with music that is outside of the typical structure. And like one of I remember for myself, I had an epiphany working with <laughs> yet again, another guest we had in season one, Adam Booker. Uh, back in the day, um, we were making making hip hop beats in his basement, his, his pop's basement in uh, in St. Paul. And uh, it, it man, like we found this Ravi Shankar record, which had a scale written on the back, yes. which was a scale for sitar. And it took us like three hours to figure out how to like play this scale correctly on piano. It, it, it shouldn't have taken us that long, but we didn't know what the heck we were doing. And like, it was like, Oh my gosh, this, anything you do, you just hit random notes in this scale and everything sounds great together. Yeah. Um, and like and you, you saw have, uh, the dual purpose of, all of their scales have a purpose, have a meaning. There's like, it's it's for a particular emotion or a, a day of the week or a ceremony or yeah, to celebrate. Yeah. Anything that we did sounded great in that scale. And we just, we just, rec we recorded some sitar notes from that record, of course, because sampling is what people do. And then um, we just only, we restricted ourselves to that scale. And we had so much fun playing in that, in that more restrictive space. And it was just different than anything else that we had played with. And it ended up being like a really cool track on a record that we did with Twisted Linguistics. So yeah, it's, um, it's, uh, it's fun to have, um, 
a different palette, so to speak. And it sounds like you're you're playing with a palette that's maybe a little less common. So that's really cool. If if a sitar player were to stumble into my space, they would have a better time playing with this piano tuned the way it is than a standard tune. Okay, awesome. That's amazing. Like everywhere in the world, the 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 folk music, the local music, um, is based on more of this kind of tuning than the stuff that we're used to in the West. Okay. Well, let's, uh, let's talk about, that's like a good segue to what I wanted to talk about next. Cause everywhere in the world, you've spent some time over the last few years, pre pandemic, of course, doing some traveling, yeah. um, both sort of, uh, for yourself, sort of maybe soul searching. And also I think because you had some musical excuses to go, um, what what do you think that you musically have taken away from your travels? Do you feel like you have brought something back home with you that um, that you would never have found had you not gotten outside of Minnesota, outside of the United States, and gone to travel? That's a good question. I love that. <laughs> you can you can also humble brag now and just tell everybody where you went if you want. <laughs> I mean, it, no matter where I go. I mean, music is the is the universal language, so people are interested in the fact that I make music and they want to hear it. So that's that's an invitation, and that that's always a good, warm feeling. And then they want to tell you that they play music, and then they want to play music with you. And that's always a beautiful way to start friendship and communion. Um, I mean, I've I've been in Europe. I've toured with friends, uh, supporting their work. I've had the chance to visit South America, South South America, no, South Africa once touring with a, a friend that I was touring with. And I most recently was in Southeast Asia. And on that trip, I was getting to share some of my solo improvisations and electronic noodlings. And again, just very welcomed to do whatever I wanted to do. And it was accepted and loved, which is always a good feeling. Come back is always a thing you want to hear. <laughs> That's amazing. Um, yeah, I mean, I'm there to, to, to be myself, obviously, but also to, to listen, to smell, to taste, to touch, to use all my senses and to hopefully find some expansion, find room for, uh, other pathways to be opened up. I mean, I've been a fan of all, music from all corners of the world all my life. So getting a chance to see folks in Thailand playing music that I've heard was fun. But also the thing that I wasn't expecting was walking down like the, the strip and hearing you know, music from, coming from all sorts of venues and bars, how much sort of like karaoke style music was going on. Like people playing like Beach Boys covers perfectly, playing Herbie Hancock fusion tunes from the 70s perfectly, but having a good time doing it. So again, still finding a way to be uh, be yourself and follow that self-expression, but having fun with this beautiful depth of American music that we have and that we've get, gotten to share with the whole world. What what uh, what portion of do you feel like any of the the pulse or the the vibe of these places that you've traveled has crept into your musical output since you've come home? I feel. Yeah, most directly, that'd probably be some London connections and some Parisian connections. There, I've played with some really beautiful musicians, and they 
they just, I don't know, their, their language is so developed and so unique. It's like they've had their whole lives to pursue being creative and free with no restraints. Whereas I feel like a lot of us over here, we're trying to chase something specific and cut ourselves off too, too much. Um, so you spend the rest of your life trying to figure out all that stuff that you missed in your 20s and teens because you're trying to just make this one thing. Um, so, I mean, it's, it's, there's a good parallel to, to the generation that's coming up right now with streaming services and YouTube as their record collection. You're, there's, there's such a depth there and there's now no liberation or no, there's no, there's no like real streams or channels. You're not, you're not getting it from the clubs or from DJs and check this stuff out. You're getting it from playlists, curated playlists a little bit, but hopefully folks are just paying attention to their friends' playlists because that's where our best influences come from. This is the, the thing. I, this is the thing I was going to bring up later. So, like, maybe let's let's hold that thought for just a second. Um, let's let's talk about coming home. So, first of all, like we're we're both St. Paul cats. So, like, where specifically in St. Paul do you think of when you think of home? I think of that first home where I was born and raised, the the K through high school home. So, Aurora in Victoria. You're like right. literally, you were literally a block and a half away from our, our theater project. No, right. Like uh, if, you, if you can walk through houses, you'll walk through the front, to the front door of the theater. Yeah. It's like one block then. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, was just, yeah, yeah but do you remember what was next door? There's a, a spot that's called like maybe Crazy Louie's. Yes. I remember Crazy Louie's. Yeah, that's um, what I remember. Fun, fun fact, Crazy Louie's. Um, the son of the guy who founded Crazy Louis is the guy who bought up half the bars at University in Snelling and Midway and is trying to, uh, I think he's trying to unload them now because maybe they didn't become as profitable as he had hoped after, uh, after Minnesota United moved into the neighborhood with their new stadium. Or maybe the whole point was just to resell and get the, the bump off the property value. I don't know. But uh <laughs> Yeah, you, so you've been a longtime Rondo resident, and I know you're you're uh, you still have family right there, and um, maybe not in that house, but like just you know down down the way, just a little bit, a little closer to Dale. So you're uh, you're still uh, you're still a, a neighborhood guy. And do you where are you currently actually living at now? You say you're moving. Where are you moving to? Are you uh, staying in St. Paul or are you becoming a trader like I eventually did? <laughs> I'm staying in St. Paul for this next move, which feels good. I've been in St. Paul the last few years. I'm in Cathedral Hill right now and I'll be, I don't know, Lexham, I guess, is what my new hood will be. Okay. Um, yeah, keeping it central. Yeah, my mom's still in this neighborhood. My, I've got uh, an aunt. I've got cousins that are still in the heart of Rondo. Yeah. yeah. Are you, uh, are you still, are you still talking to Mac Mouse? Yeah, of course. Where, what's, what's he doing? <laughs> trying to live his best pandemic life. I'm, I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna uh, talk side eye things on the podcast. But he's been more. I, w I wouldn't ask you to, man. I wouldn't ask you to. I asked because I enjoy seeing him when I see him. He's still doing his thing, so I love that. That's Making what's up. His music and pursuing his his path. Matt, he's your nephew. Is that right? 
Yes, my nephew. My yeah, your, ne- your nephew uh, had a deal with Waka Flocka Flames and was signed to Brick Squad Monaco- Monopoly yep. um, and uh, hold- holding it down for St. Paul in a in a very different field, very different uh, lane than you and I have been in. <laughs> He's been a long time uh, sort of hype man and uh, apprentice of uh, Too Short in that relationship. Yeah. So yours, they just released it, uh, a record maybe at the end of last year. Oh man, I didn't. I missed it. I better go back and find it. Um, let me ask you this: um, we'll, we'll we'll change we'll change gears for just a minute, and then we'll talk about high respects. Um, since you've been a St. Paul cat for super long, what is your favorite bite of food you've ever had on University Avenue in St. Paul? <laughs> well, I mean, we could talk about like memorable things. Yeah, that's fine. That's fine. Favorite, favorite. I was I was gonna leave this question out because we did this in season one, but like it was such a good question, it caught everybody off guard. I'm gonna keep asking this one probably yeah, forever. That's a good one. You said how much a university? Can I? You St. Paul, St. Paul, University Avenue in St. Paul. I'm not gonna restrict you to Frogtown Rondo, but you gotta stay in St. Paul. Yep. Well, there's a fondness and good memories of Porky's for sure. Yep. So I mean, burger, onion rings, and. Uh, strawberry shake you give that all in one bite that's yeah. that's a bite but kicking it to today and but also a childhood connection what was called i believe caravel chinese restaurant in our youth is now owned by the son of those folks and it's now called nong bistro yep it's one of the dopest spots in all of our cities yeah, shout out to Nong. These guys are these guys are supporters of, the, of our project as well, and have uh, been gracious enough to also assist with uh, with uh, Frogtown Radio. I think that they are the hosts of the actual physical tower for WFNU, if I'm not mistaken. So there's a yeah, there's a lot of things I love on the, I love everything on that menu, but favorite bite might be the rabbit dumplings. Oh, that's a good one. I think uh, I think Damien also said Nan was like one of his favorites, and I think that he had said that there was an oxtail pho or something like that. It might, it might be my memory might be wrong about that. Right. And they also have a, a veggie pho, which I love, mushroom yeah. based. So good. Yeah. Oof. Yeah. And classy. They play vinyl. The cocktails are great. Yeah. Post pandemic, we'll have to go kick it. <laughs> <laughs> I'm uh I'm trying to get people to understand that like you can do you can bar, you can almost do like a bar crawl through that stretch of uh of of Frogtown Rondo like if you're willing to hop across the street every now and then you can uh you can make it happen because Demare's got a Demare's got a bar and like really good Ethiopian food and they're yep. like right there like literally three doors down like next door to us. Yep. And then there's Nan and you can keep going down. There's now that banquet hall across the street. Um. So yeah, you could you can you can make it you can make it happen. And what's your answer? What's your favorite bite? Um, my I, my answer was I like the special like the the special as in everything included for at um at Trey Chow. No, there nice. Um, but there's a there's a lot of great food right there. I really can't hate. I would take. Man, I'm I've a uh, I have a. Uh, we because it's right next door to Victoria Theater, and because it's uh it's housed in the building with a la Francais, our friend MK's bakery, um, 
Demra's got like great Ethiopian food. And like we have had pre-pandemic again, of course. We've had a couple of meetings there where we've gotten like the meat platter and the veggie platter. Like it's like everything they do um in two different dishes. And like I love their veggie platter. Like it's just so good. And it's a lot of food. And like for people who don't know Ethiopian food, it like y- you don't have to you don't have to be a vegetarian to love this you know it's so good <laughs> plus anything with just a lot of non bread you're gonna be fine so it's uh it's great yeah <laughs> my my dear brother my dear brother davu seru who also lives like just lives a block from there uh at you know charles and, and avon um was playing music pre-pandemic at at nong um pretty regularly um, but he was also occasionally curating like a, a group of black creators and artists in town. So it'd be like me, him, Damien, maybe Monkway sharing those platters and just, yeah, the veggie. I miss that veggie platter. Yeah. All right. Let's, uh, let's go back to talking about music. And, uh, I guess in this case, we'll talk about some music from the neighborhood. Uh, we, we have known each other for a super long time. You grew up in in Rondo in Frogtown. I grew up sort of on the border of Midway in Frogtown. Hence my Midway Rise Up shirt that I'm wearing today. Um, I, I feel like um, we were gonna always gravitate towards each other musically somehow, um, and it just so happened that it worked out in our band High Respects. You came on, and um, you know Sean McPherson and I had been doing it for a while you came on and joined us a little bit later playing keys and have uh become obviously like a very 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 important member of the band as far as defining our sound in the studio i feel like you have this ability to like completely transform what we did in the demo uh into something brand new so like a lot of times we'll go into the studio and we'll record scratch versions you and i because like we really need the drums and the bass to be on point and um at the end of the session, like, it'll be like, okay, so the vocals will be tracked next Saturday or whatever. And then like the guitar and keyboards will get their own session some other time. Um, And one of my favorite things about recording in high respects right now in the way that we're doing it in the last like five, six years, five, 10 years is that, um, yeah, we old, don't worry about it. Um, Is that um, it's like a weird little Christmas present. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> to, to hear to hear like i know what the song sounds like roughly because i have a demo version but then like we get the closest is you're going to get to final version pre-mix after you come in with your keys and it's usually you and then josh our guitar player will also do that do his thing too but um the thing that we're never quite sure of is what you're going to do because <laughs> Um, the thing is like when we perform a song live and a lot of these songs we've performed live in some, some fashion, um, Mm -hmm. or if you're rehearsing a song, um, a guitar player has this guitar and has a bunch of pedals and can kind of like give us a facsimile of what they're going to do. Yep. There's like a, there's a palette of options available. It still can get into the hundreds and thousands, but just a couple of pedals and an amp and a guitar you can get a long way and and of course there's a possibility that they may want to layer some things right but like generally speaking like we know that our guitar player josh peterson is gonna do this thing we kind of know what it's gonna be um 
but like what we could rehearse a song a thousand times and I still don't exactly know what your part's going to be because you always have a main part that we know and then a bunch of other stuff that is going to be in layers that you're going to record that because you only have two hands, you can never play live in rehearsal. Yeah. So like, there's always this, there's always this sensation of like, okay, I'm, I'm waiting for the keyboard tracking part to be done in our recording sessions. So I can hear what this record is going to sound like. Um, so <laughs> that's the thing that I'm always really excited about. Um, we, we have uh, been blessed to be able to travel a whole bunch around the country uh, back in the day and see, uh, almost all of the United States, and um, yeah, you've been you've been along for an interesting part of the journey, man. Um, I I think that my favorite memories of having you in high respects almost all stem from the road on the way home, um, or there's a specific trip. We did a whole trip um, with Lyrics Born, where you and I were like we're eating barbecue every day. <laughs> and it was a great trip because we went from Portland, Maine all the way down to Orlando and then over to Texas. And that means that you hit Carolina whole hog country and you also get Texas brisket. Yes. Um, some Florida weirdness in between. Yeah. Some Florida weirdness. I don't, what is Florida barbecue? Can somebody please tell me what Florida barbecue is supposed to be? I lived in Florida for a brief period of time and I do not know what it's supposed to be. Um, if somebody could tell me what Florida barbecue is supposed to be, I would greatly appreciate it. It better not be swordfish. <laughs> I'd be better with that. Um, I'm sure it's just going to be like, I, I mean, it's Florida. Like they're, they're, um, they have a very different identity. That's like a little more tied to, well, their culinary identity anyway, depending on where you are in Florida. But I was in, I was in Miami area is probably a little more tied to the Everglades. So I'm sure there's some alligator influence or something like that. I just don't know. Somebody please tell me. I had forgotten about the, the barbecue tour. We always hit the best food spots on the way home or on that barbecue tour. That whole tour was good. But the one, the, the gastronomic tour that stands out the most because it was like a nice concise number of, of dates and it was a good number of cities. And we had this thing was the sushi tour when our engineer Joe Mabbitt joined us for our dates uh, playing with Kate and the Walkman on the West Coast. Yeah, that's right. We started in L.A. and then in Vancouver. And yeah, you can easily have sushi in all those cities up the coast. And it was the best in Vancouver, I think. Yeah, absolutely. Um, that was a very interesting tour. And I always love to tell the story of how we got on that tour. Yeah, that's a good one. Um, so I'm going to tell it now. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, we had, we had, uh, high respects played our, maybe our very first show or maybe our second show ever in, in, uh, in San Francisco. And, uh, it was not a great show. Like, let's be honest. It was like a very poorly attended show at weird this, venue. yeah. And a weird venue. Um, not bad, but not bad. we, good bar. yeah, we learned, we learned like halfway through that it, that it was a gay bar, which is fine. Like, but they as we were just growing in our profile like that's not uh, a demographic that we had marketed to ever we just cool. we we just hadn't um if it was now we probably would do things differently but we just hadn't and um the whole show there was this woman in the front 
who is screaming at us asking us to play random songs <laughs> and like you know like the like the wedding dj's worst nightmare like play cypress hell that kind of thing you know <laughs> just random and uh after the show this guy comes up and is like hey man i just uh, i want to apologize for my uh my my wife was pretty obnoxious up there and I'm, I'm just really sorry and we're like yeah yeah whatever man cool yeah uh anyway if you guys uh if you guys have a do you guys have like a manager can i do you have like a business card and i'm like yeah yeah sure whatever man and i gave him our manager at the time vicky i gave her i gave him her phone number and uh the next like the next day she like calls us freaking out because that was the lead singer of cake <laughs> <laughs> so random yeah because that's that's the bay yeah and uh he had like specifically come to see us and i don't know how he knew of us but he had he asked us pretty much on the spot if we would do a, show, a tour with cheap trick and de la soul and <laughs> cake which is a heck of a lineup and uh and we couldn't do that because cheap trick insisted on their own opener and we thought yeah, it was all we thought yeah. it was all lost and yeah. uh but the following year we got another phone call and it was us and the walkman and cake and of course that's that's the sushi tour that you're talking about where we ate sushi like every single day that was a great tour that was super fun agreed yeah just good memories yeah but i just know that uh coming home from almost any tour we ate really well because the home stretch you're just like uh, maybe it's just bad. Maybe that's why I've gained all this weight over the years. It's just binge eating. It's like, oh, I'm stressed out. I just want to go home. <laughs> you just eat like garbage, AKA really good. You eat a lot of really good food. That's really bad for you. Exactly. And yeah. then you come home and detox. Yeah, exactly. So there we go. All right. We've got, we've got, we've been on this tangent. But I, I got to tour a little later in life. So I, yeah, I did eventually learn how to tour and be, you know, kind, considerate, and loving to your body. Whole different, different ball game. <laughs> Not a part of high respects life. Um, so let's let's talk a little bit about that because you actually have traveled with some other artists, and I, I have it here in my notes to make sure that we talk about your time touring with Chastity Brown and Brother Ali, um, who I know are obviously very different touring groups. So, um, and I think you got a chance to actually lead the like somewhat lead the band for Chastity. Is that right? I. No, she can lead her own band. I know she can lead her own band. I <laughs> thought I had a we had a conversation with her years ago where I thought she sort of insinuated that she that she was letting you take the helm. I feel like I, when I came in, I you know because I only do me the one way. I had ideas and notions. I was like, oh, this. I, so yeah, the band changed pretty quickly after I joined. We'll just say, say that. I'll offer <laughs> that. Um, and where we where we got to when we finally made our first album together. Uh, yeah, that band was just beautiful and yeah. was able to bring her ideas to life. So, And you got to tour across much of the U.S. And, and a good chunk of Europe with her, did you not? We played a few beautiful places and beautiful shows in the U.S., but mostly it was abroad for us and uh, as a duo, mostly. So it was her music uh, and me as accompanist and backup vocalist humbly offering my vocals. Yeah, that was beautiful. A lot of the UK, we toured that that island a bunch and circled it, which was nice. So I've gotten to see a few communities a few times and have gotten to go back and see them on my own. We also did uh, Germany a few times and the Netherlands a bunch, which was gorgeous. Awesome. 
I it's criminal that I've not been to the Netherlands because I have family there. But, yeah, you do. You, you know, need to go visit them. Post yeah, they've come and visited me several times. I'm a I'm a I'm a jerk. <laughs> <laughs> and one of your cousins makes beautiful music. Yeah, that's true. Also, I'm broke. Um, the the other thing that I think you got to do touring with Brother Ali, and I think you mentioned it earlier, is you got to go to South Africa. Yeah, that I feel like was a direct connection. I feel like Atmosphere played the Cape Town Jazz Festival one year, and then the next year they had Brother Ali. Um, yeah, it was a good, I mean, you know what festivals are, even though it's called a jazz festival, same blues festivals. Yeah. There's always, it's always a mix. Yeah. Uh, the year we were there, uh, Jill Scott was one of the headliners. Got to wow. see her. Loved that. Robert Glasper experiment with uh, MF Doom was a, a featured artist. Loved that set because Doom wasn't allowed in the country, in this country at the Why? time. But, so, you know, drugs, passport <laughs> issues, metal masks, <laughs> scofflaw. Um, what else did I see? Yeah, that was, that was just a. Ooh, that that trip blew my mind. Uh, yes, yeah, that, that was a vacation because we were there for a week and played one forty-five minute set and got to see some beautiful things and meet beautiful people. I remember you had, you had uh, you had reached out to me. I think via Facebook Messenger, like one of the very 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 few times you've ever reached out to me through means other than just text or email. And you had said that you would move there. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so obviously you were taken by the place. Um, have you uh, have you ever considered moving, like actually moving away from St. Paul, from Rondo, from from Minnesota? Yes, of course. Uh, like seriously considered, like put in the work. Put in the work. The pandemic has sped up the work and also changed changed my ideas as to where I want to be. But yeah, the the vision has shifted over the years. There's there's never really been a city or any place on the earth that's called out to me. I used to, I had a professor of French who used to, whenever she would see me, she'd say, hey, have you found it yet? <laughs> your, your, your spiritual home, that place on the earth that calls to you. And I've been a lot of places, but I have a lot of places yet to get to. And no, no, no place other outside of Minnesota yet has drawn to me. Like I'm drawn to mountains and to rivers and to lakes and mountains. So I feel like as soon as I'm able, I'm gonna buy a chunk of a mountain somewhere and I don't really care where it is. Yeah, I'm definitely drawn to the ocean and that's one thing that Minnesota does not have at all. Um, but we do have Lake Superior, which is a pretty darn close facsimile and I love it there. Agreed. Um, well, craggy coastline with waves crashing, so. Yeah. I, I would um I would move to Duluth happily, and I have a friend who actually we have a friend who just did, um who we don't have to get into right now. But the uh, yeah I, I would move up there happily as far as the scenery is concerned. But I would miss my I would miss my St. Paul peeps. Same uh, yeah within Minnesota I I mean I the the North Shore is gorgeous, and I've been in beautiful cabin situation up there and on the South Shore too, but. If I kept it in Minnesota, I feel like I'd want to be within like 90 minutes. So the Twin Cities is yeah, for sure. Out of reach. Yeah, for sure. Because um, true chow and you know, yeah. Thailand, the things are gonna call to you. I need that bowl of pho, man. I need <laughs> it. <laughs> I had pad thai today. I need my good pad thai. I'm just saying. Um, the 
Oh yeah, there's a thing that I meant to hit earlier that I'm, I might just I might just pedal back to real quick. You have been lucky to be the recipient of a bunch of different fellowships and grants over the years. And I wonder if you would be willing to talk about um, the money. Like yeah. there's a, we talked about this a lot with uh, Mooks with say Mukta. Uh, and she is like somebody who has worked with springboard for the arts and like helps people find grants and opportunities. And um, I know that there's like a, uh, an artistic side to all of this, right? Where we all want to be the best creative type that we can be. And we just want to be in our world and make the music that binds our world to our, to our brains. Right. But then there's also the side that like, is like the, the lights got to stay on, you know? Um, and like that studio that you have in the background right now is like, looks pretty cool. And you got a piano in there and like, that's great. But like, if you're not working a nine to five job, that's all got to be paid for somehow. So like, it, you know, do you find that like the writing grant applications and applying for these fellowships that actually help to pay those bills? Is that a, a, a major part of what you do? Is that like a chore that you have to do? Is it something that you enjoy doing? We are in the height of what I call application season. Yes, we are. So from January 1st to June 1st, there's a lot of things that have uh, application windows open, fellowships, grants, residencies. Uh, yeah, that's always been a part of my understanding of the composer's life, specifically more than, you know, pop musicians or jazz musicians, but that that's all always been a lie. All of these grant opportunities and, and residency opportunities are open to everybody, no matter what kind of art you're making, no matter what your educational background is or what your, uh, if you're an autodidact or if you studied somewhere, doesn't matter. Because ultimately, at the end of the day, it's either you make good art that is engaging to people or it's the other stuff. Um, so then at some point, you just have to learn how to write well about yourself. And it gets tedious having to think about yourself in the ways that they frame things. But they're just really wanting to get to know you. And the more you know yourself and the, the better and clearer your language becomes. And it's just expressing this is where I am. This is where I am right now. This is where uh, my art making is. This is where I'm coming from. This is what I've made. This is what I hope to make. And this is what I made. It's, it's, a, it's really easy math when you think about it. Um, people to put too much stock into grant speak and thinking that they have to jump through these hoops and connect to these rubrics in a certain way. That's, there's a lot, that's a lot of bullshit. You just need to write honestly. Uh, I, know, I know some people that would strongly disagree with you there. <laughs> I've sat on panels and reviewed hundreds of grant applications and fellowship applications. Again, that's the best way to learn how to write them is to review them. Um, you see paths and patterns and uh, you can see a, a bullshit application. You can see someone who's actually put the work in and, and, and you get to believe, yeah, I can see that this art is going to be made. Really, that is another factor is the art going to be made regardless of if you get this money or not? That goes a long way. If you, if it's the money would be nice, but this art's going to happen regardless. Uh, I feel like that's helpful if you can express that energy. Yeah. Do you, um, do you have any tips or pointers for uh, maybe aspiring musicians in whatever genre, if they are looking at, trying to fund their careers um, because I mean, they're again, we're, we're maybe past that era where like a, a record label 
is going to be the ones to pay you a big advance so you can support yourself. Nowadays, it really is a lot of times up to an artist to either just make those direct sales happen or find that funding through grants, fellowships, residencies. What, what, uh, what advice do you have for artists who are choosing to go that direction? Exactly. It depends where you are in this country. Uh, in Minnesota, we know we have a, a greater pool to draw on arts legacy funding. Um, so the State Arts Board has, a tro has trouble getting through their budget in a year. They have excesses of, of funds to give away. Uh, that's not the case uh, for folks in California or Mississippi. Uh, but there are national awards and national things. They just they get harder to, uh, to win if the, the pool is bigger. Um, but it's still possible. Um, advice. I don't know. I mean, for me, it's always I've followed some of the models of my teachers and uh, their peers and generations before where it's a third of your income you're thinking about as coming from grants and fellowships, hopefully. Another third coming from teaching and another third coming from commissions and art, direct art making, direct commission projects. Um, so that's what I've been aiming for over these last five years specifically and going forward. For me, the teaching chunk is more uh, guest lecturing, uh, clinician work and occasional private students, but I'm not a I've never wanted to be a teacher, so it's always, I do it if they come to me looking, but I'm not looking for those gigs. Sure. Always happy to be in the classroom, but uh, no, they don't need me. Sure. <laughs> um, and then, I mean, really, there, there can be another revenue stream once you get things rolling. And that, that can be your merchandise, that can be your albums, uh, that can be your scores if you're selling things like that. Um, and now that we're dealing with a lot of streaming situations, you should be looking for sync rights with uh, your performances that are happening online and being streamed. Um, you should be looking for all, yeah, you should be looking for your money in all the places. Make sure your licensing agents, agencies know where your music is being performed so they can chase down that money for you, the pittance that it is. You never know though. I mean, it may be a pittance right now and then somebody somewhere grabs it and restreams it a million times like it's just amazing you just don't know yeah so yeah get get take take that wise advice from uncle devon gray right there ladies and gentlemen like uh you know think about think about your money artists like you need to even if it's maybe just a little tiny streaming opportunity you may need to think about it like it it could blow the hell up so all right. Well, awesome, man. I appreciate it. There's only one more thing that I wanted to talk to you about. And uh, it's a thing that that has stuck with me for the last couple of years, because uh, two years ago, you hit me up saying that you were doing something at the Children's Theater. Mm -hmm. And uh, we brought our son, Vincent, down, who at the time was just turning. He had just turned four. And uh, no, he was three. He was still three. And uh, he uh it's hard to get a three-year-old to sit through just about anything in a dark room without making a ton of noise and annoying people. Um, and he um, really loved this show. Can you tell us a little bit about what, what this was that you were doing at the children's theater and like how you got involved with it? Yeah. That again was like a, a referral situation there. They had a, a production coming to the theater with specific, specific needs musically for who was going to be in the pit, what the band needed to be. And uh, the, the folks at the theater looked around and said, you know what, well, we, 
Hmm. Who can we? Who? I'm trying. I'm trying to be politically correct here. Basically, they wanted someone black to be playing the music of Bob Marley as opposed to someone white, and I am here for that energy. <laughs> uh, so I, yeah, I got a call asking if I'd be interested in being the band leader for the production of Bob Marley's Three Little Birds. And I am happy that I said yes to that gig. It's not the kind of gig that I would normally say yes to, but it's playing one show 55 times the same way. And they want you to play it the same way every time. Uh, but, you know, you, you push back a little bit and say, you know what, but this is real music. We're playing real music. Can't you recognize that? And they say, yes. So then you nudge things a little bit and then you get to open up and turn it into a real, a real gig. Yeah. And we had a beautiful time playing that. And being- well, it, it was a great production. And at the end of the night, they introduced the, uh, the band director. That would be you. And you get to stand up and turn around and stick your head out of the pit, which blew little young Vincent's mind because like the whole time he's watching what's happening on stage and he realizes that there's a hole in the front of the stage, but he doesn't realize that there's a band in the bottom of that hole. And um, you stick your head up and he recognized you (laughs) or just your head. (laughs) Uh, And he flipped out about it, which was pretty great. And you were kind enough to take him and actually see the pit and see where the band sits and all that stuff, which he loved and he was bouncing off the walls. Um, but like, that's another one of those experiences. Like, I hope that that's the sort of experience that'll make him be into music. Right. Absolutely. So I, I, I appreciate you for, uh, for letting him see behind the scenes and for showing us behind the scenes as well. It was fun for us too, but I know it was mind blowing for him. <laughs> and, uh, and, uh, yeah, it was a great show, man. It was really awesome. So thank you very much for, for inviting us out there. It's the kind of thing that like, I'm always like, Oh, we're going to go do one of those things one of these days. And then we just never do. So, uh, thank you for that, man. I appreciate it. Yeah, yeah, anything else that we haven't talked about that you want to talk about? Or do you have anything coming up or coming out that you want people to know about? I I mean, I have one thing coming up that has a specific release date. Everything else is the way I like it, which is amorphous, like eventually. Yeah. Well, tell Uh, tell us about the one thing that's definite. I've been the composer in residence with the Schubert Club of Minnesota for the last two seasons. Uh, so my time with them is coming to an end uh, this spring, and so I have to pony up and give them uh, a big artistic expression. Uh, they have commissioned me for to create an evening-length something, and I am currently in production of that something, and it's turned out to be a really beautiful thing. Again, the pandemic has put a terrible kibosh on so many dreams and so many notions. Uh, I thought I knew what this thing was going to be. And then this happens and you have to rethink everything. Yeah. So I've got talented friends all over the world and everyone is capable of recording themselves, finding a videographer, you know, making something with iPhones or smartphones. And yeah, so it's going to be a beautiful, collage of, of art yeah I'm, I'm i'm also getting to express myself visually more these days of course because everything has to be a streaming yeah. visual show thing well when when will this uh when will this be uh complete and when where can people find it you can find it easily through sugar club website sugarclub.org sugar club's youtube page I believe the specific date of release is May 20th. And beyond that, I'm working on my first 
string quartet, traditional note, traditional instrumentation string quartet since my days at conservatory. So I've had two decades to think about what I might do with the string quartet. I'm getting to work with a really beautiful group called Del Sol, we're based out of San Francisco. And again, it was an, an option. Uh, they came to me asking for new work and they came with the beautiful offer saying, let's spend a week at this farm and cook beautiful meals and go on hikes and create this piece together, at least get it going. And then pandemic. Yeah. So let's create a vibe. And then the pandemic comes and says, the vibe is now a zoom session vibe and it's not the same energy. But yeah. <laughs> we're finding our way through and eventually there will be a new string chord set at the end of it. So that's exciting, man. Well, always exciting to talk to you. Thank you, brother. Thank you for joining me on the podcast. Thanks for the invitation. Yeah, man. Uh, once again, ladies and gentlemen, this is Devon Gray, a composer, a musician, and a general all-around good guy from Rondo. So thank you, Devon. Thank you. All right. Peace. It builds me up. It breaks me down. I still get up. White walls on my Lincoln got miles Envisioning night falls, the day is going wild The sky that falls down like the eyes of a tired child So where do we go then, and what are we supposed to do? Cling to your home, kid, those that hold you In the old days, the things that we fold you Will be attacked, you'll be avenged like some old fool See, we born free up a burning It's all the more we learn it Molded by the whole wide world, the cold turning And die with broken shoulders, weight of a life lived Some will live longer, cause some of us stay kids We have our own religion, don't all keep the faith That's why I got visions, we need to meditate Tape. They love so said that we got the highest stakes. Sometimes coming in is the greatest escape. It breaks me down. I still get up and move around. Every day is your first day. Let's paint the town. Cause when I get up, can't feel the ground. We all wish for small bits of solace. To flitter and fall, swish, whisk away all this So when venomous thoughts slither across your conscience Just drop the blades and straight shave the nonsense I've been trained on conquest that'll tame confidence In my lane, no contest, an insane optimist In a populace of popular kids With the props and positive gifts I'm about as hot as it gets, honest, I'm honest Neurotic, sonic, accomplice Counter-culture responsive, contemplating the ominous With a prominence that astonishes Ponderous, honorless, hominids Alpha dollars and dominance I'm a spit, but is that as hot as it gets? On some ecology shit, it ain't quite a sauna But this climate got you bothered a bit, like breathing with a wet towel over your mouth. Arctic jungle, savage land, planet disavowed. The rules, they don't apply the same to all of us. The blues we sing, cause we supposed to shake it off. The news don't always sound the same to all of us. These tools won't always work. I'm gonna break it off. The rules, they don't apply the same to all of us. The blues we sing, cause we supposed to shake it off. The news don't always sound the same to all of us. These tools won't always work. I'm gonna break it off. We on the same ship, got the same sails. Praying that we don't tip, clinging to the rails. Dealing with the same shit, same junk man. Sometimes you think you're running, but you an old snail But that's just relativity, fast with negativity Blasting for discretions, all connectivity Last one at the table, don't eat how we live and see First one at the ladder, pulls it up, now you're killing me Damn, cause I'm a positive dude 99% of the time, I'm in a positive mood Tell me that I gotta walk a mile, most colossal of shoes I may be a fool, but I'm on the move It's true, what they say about aiming for the moon Stop following, these stars got work to do Learn as we go, and just trying to follow rules Sometimes these rules prevent you from being a dude